Today we're going to commence a new series, like I said, and uh, we're going to do this with the last series still in our mind as we do that. And um, in the last series we were in the Sermon on the Mount, hence that photo, you know, which is quite familiar from series gone by. It, um, and at the beginning of that series, I spoke about the way that Matthew unfolds the events leading up to Jesus' time there. Now, we're shown in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus' early life essentially retells Israel's story a bit. You know, it, you know, you've got a clear Jewish family lineage in the line of David. You've got the need to flee to and return from Egypt. Uh, you've got, uh, he goes, next he's seen going through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness and he emerges triumphant, rejecting a blood-free offer from Satan along the way, you know. So it's a really cool. And then he announces in radical fashion that the kingdom everyone wanted to see happen was now at hand. And everyone's agendas and everyone's ways needed to be subject to his way of doing things. He pulls 12 guys together. He ascends a mountain. Again, this all reflects Israel a little bit. And he begins to teach how this radical kingdom way should be lived out. Instead of retaliation, forgive and love. Instead of aggression, be meek. Instead of living for now and amassing things solely of a temporal nature, Live with the kingdom in view. Have an eye on the kingdom and seek the kingdom first. Instead of judgment, choose self-reflection. Instead of the fancy outward religiosity, choose deep, private and honest devotion. Instead of the wide road of least resistance, choose the narrow way and build your life on good foundations. It's radical in its most original meaning. Everyone talks about the radical way Jesus uh, you know, inaugurated the kingdom, the, the radical message of Christ. And the original meaning of radical pertains to the root of the matter. Wholesale and thorough change taking place in us, starting inside of us and then the world around us. Because the kingdom is in us, we begin to live in anticipation of that kingdom. It's what we long to see come in the world around us. And we are going to know this kingdom fully someday. We know the kingdom is at hand right now, within reach, but not fully here yet. But we know some of it. We have glimpses of some of it. We know how it operates through the words of Christ. And we are in it already through our salvation. And we announce and we demonstrate what we know of that kingdom Until such time as Jesus comes and makes it full. We're now going to commence a new journey through an ancient city. We're going to be staying here for a few months as we interact with the church of this ancient city. That city, if you've been reading the church bulletins, you'll know is the ancient Greek city of Corinth. There's two letters in the New Testament written to the church that is there. It's a city that has a long history, but in its current setting, or in the way that it is being written to, it is actually a relatively young and modern sort of city at the time. It had once been completely leveled. But Julius Caesar was the one who rebuilt the city, had the power of Rome behind it. 
the city as we'll be exploring it is unlikely to have even celebrated its centenary. Building commenced 46 BC, completed 44 BC. And it's a city that's absolutely booming. If you were a real estate agent, this is where you would want to work. Everything is location, location, location. There's an excellent maritime industry there. There's three ports. And it's utilised by thousands every year. There's an overland track as part of the infrastructure there. It's on a, a, a neck of dirt, a, a, an isthmus, and there is a track where boats and car, and lighter boats and cargo are travelled by land over this thing, so that uh, lighter empty boats or even light boats can go over this and not go through treacherous waters as much. This endeavour saved days of travel and reduced risk. There's a major sport event there every two years. The Isthmian Games, it's second to the Olympics. It's a bit like our Commonwealth Games, except you don't have to campaign every time you want to hold it. I love the one they're talking about, Country Victoria being a host for the Commonwealth Games, all through Shepparton and areas like that. It's creative. There's a decent population. Somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people, depending on, on, on different scholars. There's a good mix of urban and rural living. And these two could work well together to actually make a pretty decent economy. As a city to live in, as a region to live in, it was a good middle ground. It was about ten times bigger than the snobby setting of Athens and about a fifth the size of overcrowded Rome. The deity of choice was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And a massive temple had been made there on the hill to worship her. Ancient historians suggested that there was like a thousand temple prostitutes in there to aid in the process of worship. Modern people suggest the lodgings were probably a bit small for that. However, there is enough evidence, loads of historical evidence to suggest that there was a really strong presence of immoral behaviour and the red light industry, both religious or otherwise, was a booming trade. There were other prominent gods, Asclepius, the god of, of, of healing. There were sites for worshipping Isis and, and Poseidon. These are the Egyptian and Greek deities of the maritime workers. Corinth is also said to have had a pretty humanistic culture as well. Strong secular Greek ideals. You know, individualism, freedom, distrust of authority. And that big word that we're fighting with a lot at the moment, equality. Trying to understand how that works. There was a prevalent practice in Corinth called patronage going on there as well. It's worth keeping that in mind as we go over this series. A patron was a rich individual, someone cashed up who would, uh, who would take on various individuals and seg segments of society and bring them on as clients. A patron would provide land, jobs, money and legal protection for the less well-off. And a client was expected to reciprocate with various services, political support, positive PR, public endorsements, and generally taking the side of the patron in the public sphere. 
if the patron decided he wanted to run for mayor, well, he had, a, he had an entourage ready to sing his praises. If a patron had an agenda to set up in the church, well, he had an entourage to come and actually further his course. Very interesting setting here. A lot of scholars suggest this practice was making things muddy in the church and may well have been the cause behind some of its problems. A modern writer suggested that if we combine New York, Los Angeles and Las Vegas together into one ancient culture, you get something close to the city of Corinth. It attracted interesting people from all sorts of interesting places. You had people going there to seek their fortune. You definitely had a workforce full of, full of people who were not there by choice. Slaves, people who had to pay off their debts and had to work that off. People who worked for the ports or people who worked for the patrons. There were people looking for work. There were people who loved the nightlife, the urban wildlife. There were people who held high opinions of themselves. There were people who were entrepreneurial. There were people who held good ranks in the army before retiring. And there were people who believed their talents were being grossly overlooked in Rome. It was really hard to make a name for yourself in Rome. It was a very crowded, very crowded at the top there. People who went to Corinth, or as some sort of little Rome, people would leave Rome and go to Corinth to go and make a name for themselves and try to be at the top of the stack there because they couldn't be at the top of the stack in Rome. And in 51 AD, this people would become the next harvest field in the journey of a wounded and weary evangelist and church planter named Paul. Let me give you a bit of a tour here. We know that he'd previously been working in a great team and he'd done this with some good success in Philippi. But then eventually he gets beat up. And kind of has to leave that town, right? We know about the Philippi jailer coming to faith, but not before he's, you know, Paul and Silas have been beaten up a fair bit. They go on further to, to Thessalonica and, 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 uh, and again, they had some success, but some things got pretty hot there as well. They move on to Berea and, uh, and then on to Athens. Paul had to go alone from there to Athens. We read in Athens that the elite of society gave him an audience, but not much more. And then he comes into the massive city of Corinth. <clears throat> he's able to set up some work there. He's able to speak at the synagogue for some time. But eventually they reject him. A few Jews follow. But the massive revival that took place came from all the people that I listed before. Pagan, cosmopolitan, immoral Gentile people in all sorts of states of repair and different background. We know from Acts that Paul spent 18 months there. Up to that point, it was the longest time he'd spent in one place. We know he eventually moved on to Ephesus, but he's had the opportunity to keep up to date with what is going on there. There's been some written correspondence already between Paul and the Corinthian church. With all that background, we're now going to come to the subject of our study. 
1 Corinthians. If you've got your Bibles, let's open them up. 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look, have a bit of a, a look just to get the ball rolling today at the first part of chapter 1. This is the second letter that Paul has written to them. At least the second letter. It's dated at 55 AD. Paul is writing to a large church that has only had its doors open for four years. It's made up of people from all sorts of crazy walks of life, still trying to work out what the radical kingdom life is all about. Still learning how to announce and demonstrate this kingdom they've recently become citizens of. And I'm going to put a spoiler alert out there. In their attempts to be this radical expression, they've made the mistake of going to extremes rather than look at its roots. Being radical, as I said in its earliest usage, was all about the roots, the fundamentals, the essentials, the basics. But the word in modern times, when used in a religious sentence, is often spoken of about the extremes, isn't it? We talk about radicalization. We talk about the, uh, the extreme, and we link that with extremism of different religious movements. We're talking about this week in ABC Radio, they're talking about the merits of de-radicalization programs in the correctional system. We think of radical today, we think extremist. The radical way is actually about looking about the roots of who we really are. I don't know about you, but I want to be a, I want to be a Christian who is known by what my roots are, not what my extremes are. And I believe as a church, we're called to really bear that in mind. And, and uh, the working title of this series is actually Redefining Radical for that very reason. So uh, we're going to look at m- more ways how that's done. Jesus inaugurated a radical way. But it starts with the roots of who we are from the inside out. I believe Corinth, in unison with many of the Western church today, have erred towards the extremes of it. And uh, so we're going to start reading anyway and look at what the radical way is and how Paul calls the church back to it. So we're going to start at verse 1 and uh, we're just going to look at a few ideas as we look at the first 17 verses today. So we'll start at verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your thumb in there. Just the opening greeting, but there's a couple of thoughts to bring out there. First up, we see that Paul is putting on his apostolic hat in this letter. That's not always the case if you look at the other greetings of the letters. Sometimes he talks about being a servant. Sometimes he talks about other things. But a few times he uses the word apostle. This is one of them. Corinth had a problem of individualism, had a problem of disdain towards authority. And there's people even in the Corinthian church who don't like to be led all that much. And Paul's just throwing that in here in his opening greeting. And he'll speak into that further as he goes later into the letter. There's a reminder of the positional place the church is supposed to be sitting in. They are the church of God here. That's a reminder of the big picture of who they are. 
and they are a sanctified people. They are called to be a holy people. This week, the house churches will be speaking into that further as we understand, as we explore what salvation does in us and the process of sanctification. We'll read shortly how this church appears anything but holy and set apart. But Paul is again calling the church to remember who they are through the work of Christ, which they have already received. And they're not alone. They're not the center of their own little religious universe. But they are part of the people from everywhere who have called on the name of the Lord, their God and ours. There's a bit of a trend in Western churches where we make ourselves the center of our own eschatology. We make ourselves, we're looking for how the end times fits with our personal agenda and the American church is very big on that right now and political powers right now is all feeding into the end time and all that sort of stuff. What about just getting on with announcing the kingdom and let Jesus work out the finer details? It's humbling, or at least it should be, to realize that we are part of an incredibly huge entity. The church of God is, 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 is massive and we're not the center of it. That's just a few thoughts. Anyway, let's, let's keep reading on. Start at, keep going for verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, let's come back. At this point in the short bit of Bible I've just read out, nine verses, the name of Jesus has been used nine times. And we're only getting started. In this section, Paul is reminding them who it is that is making them who they are. They've not gotten to where they are at because they were anything special, but because Jesus was hard at work in their lives and in their midst. Bringing Jesus to the middle of it all, that is, that is amazing. That's an amazing thing to notice here. The church is being told that they have been gifted in an incredible way to do and be what they have been set apart to do and be. The gifts they have have a bit of a purpose, you see them in there. To enrich the church with wisdom and knowledge. To equip the church to live a firm and blameless life. To assist the church in remaining faithful until Christ's return and the full reveal of his kingdom. To facilitate fellowship with Christ until they could see him completely one day. These gifts, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Some see this as an argument for, towards continualism, what we talked about last year with the, uh, the idea of the Spirit continuing. The sign gifts of the Spirit are said to continue for all the church age. There's no hint here that all the gifts have a use-by date other than the full realisation of the kingdom when they'll no longer be needed. 
Use the gifts until Christ returns. Bearing in mind, in that setting, Christ was returning. The understanding of Christ's return was a whole lot more urgent then than perhaps we live out today. The gifts and the grace they have received was intended to empower the church to live the radical kingdom life. But we're about to see that despite having all the tools, the church in Corinth is falling short in a few major ways. The first issue is going to come up quite swiftly. Paul starts with all the really nice stuff, the greetings, the encouragements, but then he gets straight to business. Let's read on. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that they were, you were baptized in my name. Yes, I, always bat- I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. We'll have the verse 17 in one moment, but we'll just look at this for a second. I appeal to you. Even though he's about to address a really tough subject, he's chosen a very interesting word here. This sits in the how to address a tough subject scale. This is somewhere between I'll avoid the subject and I demand of you. In the middle, I appeal. In other words, can I come alongside you? Can I actually bring you up to speed here, guys? Can I, can I encourage you to really take a really, really deep look at this? But can I wear an apostolic hat doing it? It's a heartfelt plea. You've got all the tools you need. You've got all the spirit you need. You have a very clear, Christ-centered way of life to live out. So please, guys, start putting those things to use. And he starts with a radical element, a radical one for Corinth. Unity. It calls them to a place of unity in mind and thought. Simply put, everyone needs to get on the same page. There's a clear problem that Paul is addressing here. And quite frankly, it looks like Chloe's house church has thrown the church under the bus here. Come from Chloe's household. I just heard it from Chloe. Chloe's household told me, far out, imagine Chloe now. (laughs) As it's being read in church, she's shrinking... (laughs) I'll have to talk about my house church about that later. (laughs) There's people fighting over human teachers. The way they would would debate over the merits of ancient Greek philosophers. There was a movement called the Sophists, or the Sophists, and these would work as itinerant speakers on life and philosophy. There was a string of them. And guys like this with their philosophical insight and their incredible speaking skills 
could attract quite a crowd and they could wow audiences with what they say. There was a, a, a multi-thousand seat theatre in the town and people would come and fill that to hear people like these speak. In modern circles, we've got people like Tony Robbins who do a similar thing. We've got motivational speakers that whip up a crowd into a frenzy, don't we? Secular-minded, self-help gurus speaking about the way you, your personal philosophy and how you approach things. The Greeks had a string of them and they had debate afterwards about the merits of one over the other after each person had been through. And this was making its way into the church. The church is just four years old. And there's already been two significant and very different pastors go through there. Paul was the first. Anyone know the second? I've heard a whisper over here. All right, the whisper isn't getting louder. Apollos. He was said to be a really eloquent communicator. He was the next one. They both brought very different educations and experiences to the pastoral table, much like different pastors do today. Apollos was educated in Alexandria, a major university city. Paul was educated in, in Tarsus, another major university city. They had different uh, ways and, and they were equally educated. They just had different things they brought, different skill sets they brought. This created unhealthy comparisons, the same way the pagans analysed the Greeks. To the point that they got swept up in their loyalties to human wisdom and teaching. And they lost sight of the kingdom way they were all supposed to be displaying in unity. Even the ones claiming to be of Christ were not behaving as noble as that sounds. Oh, I'm of Christ. Have you ever heard that? No, I, don't, I just got to follow Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to have any allegiance to any person. I'm, I'm not going to, I just follow Jesus. You know? And you know we're all following Jesus, but you just know there's something that doesn't ring true about that. In this case, they were pulling the Jesus speaks to me more than all of you card. They were using that strategy to their own advantage. You had a really unhealthy church setting going on here. There was patronage being used to leverage agendas. There were personality-centered congregations beginning to form. There was individualism wrapped up and sold to the church as a spiritual gift. You had human logic, worldly philosophy and ambition overtaking the main message of the gospel that the church was supposed to be concerned with, completely concerned with. So they're getting all into these little side tangents and side pockets and allegiances and all these different things and we're missing the main message and Paul is calling us back to that in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Massive verse that. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. First up, you've got those, if we have a debate about baptism and its role in salvation... Paul saw his main thing as getting the gospel out first. That's definitely something to really keep in mind there. That the main thing, you know, that he actually handballed the task of baptising the other people, it was always assumed 
People never joined the church without baptism. People didn't get saved without getting baptized. But the first and foremost, it was about preaching the gospel, receiving the gospel first and foremost. Paul's emphasis is preaching the gospel and power. After that, we have a clear reminder. In fact, I see in this a warning to the church of Corinth. And I believe we must consider this warning afresh in the Western church as well. When things are not right, when unity doesn't exist, when we go off on wild tangents and forget what we're actually here to be doing, the cross gets robbed of its power. If as disciples we become enamored with the preacher of the month in our podcasts and no longer relate to each other locally, we have a bit of a problem going on here. If leaders like me look at the church environment like this as a place to build myself an empire, to use the pulpit to build my personal profile, then we have a problem. If we would rather entertain snippets of Christian self-help rather than pursue an honest journey of discipleship, when we entertain division, both actively and passively, getting caught up in the, oh, people are saying idea, or getting breaking off into different special interest groups and, and looking to, to further agendas that are over and above the gospel and actually getting the gospel out there. If we proclaim or promote all sorts of Christianese things ever so eloquently, but never actually preach the gospel, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ returning. If any of those things creep in, we begin to do what Paul fears here. We get caught up in style and we throw away substance. We become a place of self-help rather than a place of discipleship. The kingdom won't be announced and it certainly won't be demonstrated. And as Paul puts it, the cross will be emptied of its power. Not because it somehow lost that power, but because we've forgotten how to proclaim it. At this early stage of this series, as we're just getting started, the radical challenge in all this, at this time, is the pursuit of unity. To get to the point where all of us, not just our preachers, not just our extroverts, not just our deep thinkers, but everyone can speak as one band and one sound. Our journey of the elementary series is aimed towards that end. We all become disciple makers together through that. We remain faithful to the one sound, and that one sound is Jesus. It's the gospel of the kingdom that everyone everywhere needs to hear and be invited into. 
It's Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ returning. That's the power of this whole thing. At this point, we're teasing it out, and we're going to hopefully you're going to see that there's a little depth of things to be able to dig into with this. We're certainly going to be jumping into this a fair bit in weeks to come. But for now, I just want to invite the band up, and I just want to put a bit of a quick challenge across. Just as we just, um, if anything, if just already, I'm already feeling that the Spirit is sort of nudging us and challenging us and beginning to ask questions of us. Is there anything about us? Is there anything about our expression of faith? Is there anything about our expression of community? Is there anything about how we do things, both individually and corporately, that may run the risk of robbing the cross of its power? Is there anything in our interpersonal relationships? Is there a breeding of disunity? Is there anything showing signs that things aren't as unified as they may appear to be? Is there conversations that you're not comfortable with going on? Those things just need to be dealt with and go, you know what, no more. Are we on a journey of discipleship? Real discipleship. Real study of God's word. Real growth. We're about to read shortly that Paul is actually calling these people that they're thinking so lofty of themselves but are actually still needing to be spoken of and given milk, not meat. The Corinthian church, for all its lofty things and all its leverages and all its different um, eloquences and all its philosophical debate it's still quite an immature church and Paul's going to be calling them back to that are we looking at all the philosophical things the worldly things and actually forgetting the main things the discipleship things the things that we know actually build us up regular fellowship with like-minded saints worshipping together getting into his word, getting into those times where we're actually seeking God's face, praying. Are those things, those essentials, taking place in us? Because that's where the radical part of us comes out. When we just get back to our roots, get back to the essentials, get back to the basics, out of that comes a radical way because the kingdom starts in us. And great things happen, personal transformation takes place in those basics. Is there anything we're doing that is robbing the cross of its power? Maybe the Lord might be challenging you. Maybe you just need to sort a few things out in yourself. But as a church, let's come to a point of being one band, one sound. One noise where people look at us and go, all those people know what a disciple of Jesus looks like. All of those people know what I need to know. The people walk in and there's a clear pathway towards Jesus in all that we do. That's our aim. That's what we're building towards here as a church and I believe that's a challenge set before us. Let's just remember those things and we'll close in prayer in just a moment.